Well, welcome to the hills. I know I'm talking to a lot of people that are watching online around the world. And I'm also talking to all of the good folks at West Fort Worth and South Lake Campus. And I want to begin by giving a personal endorsement to what the host of every campus have been promoting the last several weeks. And that is our first ever Renew Serve day. Now, we have done Renew for many years and given a lot of money to wonderful Christ-based agencies in town that serve people on the margins. This is our first time to say, besides just giving our money, let's give our time, let's give of ourselves. Now, here's the thing. If I say we ought to serve, everybody nods. If I say intergenerational ministry is good, young and old serving together, family serving together, everybody nods. If I say, let's do ministry that puts us in diverse context with people of other ethnic groups, everybody nods, okay? Nodding doesn't get it done. Getting it done gets it done, okay? Churches aren't great because they agree with good ideas. Churches make a difference because they actually do good things. So next week you get breakfast, you get a shirt, and we get to go out and make a difference. And so I want to encourage you to be a part of First Ever Renew Serve Day. Now, we started a series last week called Epic Grace. I'm contending that no matter how big the fail is, grace is bigger. And we've got some great examples of that in the scripture that we're going to look at for the next few weeks. I'm going to start with a story of a Christian school cafeteria. And you picked up your tray, and at the front of the line, there was a basket of apples with a sign a teacher had put up that said, only take one apple. Remember, God is watching. So you go down the line, and at the end, there was a tray of chocolate chip cookies, and a student had put up a note. Take all the cookies you want. God is watching the apples. Now, (laughs) what we want to wrestle with today is why does God make such a big deal about apples? Okay, of course, I'm talking about the very first story in the Bible of Adam and Eve. And don't send me an email about, it doesn't say it was an apple. Okay, I know that. Either way, it was fruit. You're telling me everything got turned upside down because of some fruit? So we're going to wrestle with the story because I think the way we understand the very first story in the Bible is going to shape the way we understand the rest of the Bible. And I'm going to contend a lot of us misunderstand the Bible especially some of these strange, hard stories in the Old Testament in a way that I think ultimately dishonors the character of God. Eric Swanson is a Christian author. He had a family reunion in Colorado, including his nephew Kyle, who was six, from California. And Kyle was so excited about going to swim in the local lake, but a thunderstorm came through with lightning, so they tried to explain to Kyle, who had never seen lightning where he lived, why it was dangerous to go to the lake. And so they're on the porch at their cabin as the rain falls. And Eric says, this is a teaching moment. Kyle, why did God make the mountains? Because he loves us. And why did God make all the big trees? Because he loves us. So Kyle, why did God make the lightning? Because he loves us. And he wants to kill us. (laughs) And a lot of us see these stories, especially in the Old Testament. And we read them like grace never existed. Until Jesus showed up and convinced God to become a Christian. Now what I'm going to contend is that grace is there in the Bible from start to finish. It is on every page. The Bible is telling the story of the overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love of God. And it's a story of epic grace that is, I think, revealed... 
in the most epic of fails. And I'm talking, of course, about Adam and an apple. So let's start this story in chapter 2. And I want to show you how grace is on every line of the account. It says, Then the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he placed the man he had made. The Lord God made all sorts of trees grow up from the ground, trees that were beautiful and that produced delicious fruit. In the middle of the garden, he placed the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the Lord God placed the man in the garden of Eden to tend and watch over it. But the Lord God warned him, you may freely eat the fruit of every tree in the garden, except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you eat its fruit, you are sure to die. So the first thing I want us to see is that the Bible is saying that grace has prepared a paradise. Okay? I don't know what it looked like. I'm wearing this shirt because I'm pretty sure it looked like Augusta National. Okay? But all I know is that the most epic fail can't be blamed on heredity and it can't be blamed on environment. The point is that God set up the man to flourish. He didn't set the man up to fail. Because when we read this story, it's amazing how quickly we focus on the negative. The one thing God said they could not do. Instead of focusing on all the positives, the very first word is freely. You see this beautiful paradise? Enjoy it. You are free. Free to work. Free to love. Free to eat. Free to go. Enjoy what I've created. I've created this for you to flourish. Every dude in this room should be mad at Adam. The man has a great home. He has a great job. He has all the good food he can eat. He's got a gorgeous wife who is constantly naked. (laughs) And God commanded him to go make babies with her. And he blew that. We should all be upset with Adam. And why this is important is because an appreciation of God's goodness is essential to a life of obedience. Because what Satan wants to do is convince you that God is holding out on you. That obedience to God is costing you something that's keeping your life from flourishing. You've heard of FOMO, fear of missing out. Satan is a master. He created FOMO. That's not the way the story reads. They were set up to win. They were set up to flourish. God offered Adam everything except autonomy. The one thing God forbid Adam was the authority To decide right and wrong for himself. Now this is important. The temptation was not about what to have for lunch. It was about how to relate to God. And God the creator said. Good and evil will be determined by how it relates to me. Anything consistent with my nature is good. And anything inconsistent with my nature is evil. And as creator... I have the moral authority to make that call. You're the creature and you don't. So that's really what this is all about. And it's still what it's all about. 
Because what the tempter is still doing to every one of us is saying, you don't need God to tell you what a good life is. Trust yourself. If you like it, it's good. If you want it, it's right. Isn't that the culture we live in? And the big question is, where are we going to get moral clarity? Are we going to look above or are we going to look within? And that's what Satan is offering Adam. The opportunity to decide what is best by looking in. And Adam bit. Literally. Verse 4. You won't die, the serpent replied to the woman. God knows your eyes will be opened as soon as you eat it, and you will be like God, knowing both good and evil. The woman was convinced. She saw that the tree was beautiful, and its fruit looked delicious, and she wanted the wisdom it would give her. So she took some of the fruit and ate it. And then she gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it too. At that moment, their eyes were opened. And they suddenly felt shame at their nakedness. So they sewed fig leaves together to cover themselves. Now forgive the pun, but eating that fruit literally was an eye-opener. What does that mean? They already could see. They could see that the tree was beautiful and the fruit looked delicious. What it means is that with self-autonomy came self-consciousness. Suddenly the self became the most important focus. Before sin, they were focused on God and they were focused on each other. But with disobedience came the awareness of the centrality of self. And when self becomes center, you open the door for something called shame. Because now I'm conscious of what you think of me, of what life is doing to me, of what God is doing to me. And when you open that door to self-consciousness and to shame, you've opened the door to live in fear. And that's the world they created by becoming self-autonomous. They were exposed. And they knew as soon as they ate, That they'd been deceived. They couldn't fathom any hope for a future after a fail that epic. But the Bible says where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. So notice what grace does next. It preserves a relationship. Now every time I read this story, I remember the of the pastor who heard a widow in his church was ill. He thought he'd go by during the week and check on her. He pulled up in front of her house. The car was in the driveway. The windows were up. He could hear the television on. He knocked on the door. There was no answer. So he knocked louder and shouted his name. Still no answer. He thought that's strange. He pulled a card out of his lapel. Wrote on the back Revelation 3.20. He thought that'd be cute because that's the verse that says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. He went on about his business the rest of the week. That Sunday after service, he's walking to his car. He sees a piece of paper under the windshield wiper. It just says Genesis 3.10. He looks it up and it reads, 
Behold, I heard the sound of thee walking in the garden, and I was afraid, for I was naked, so I hid myself. <laughs> so what's happened now? What's happened? Because Adam used to look forward to meeting with God. And by the way, notice who deserts the man. Not God. The serpent. You see, other faiths describe how people can pursue a distant God. The Bible is telling a story of a God who was pursuing disobedient people. And so look in verse 8. When the cool evening breezes were blowing... The man and his wife heard the Lord God walking about in the garden. So they hid from the Lord God among the trees. And the Lord God called to the man, where are you? Why is Adam hiding? He's hiding because shame and fear have convinced him that the next time he sees God, he's going to meet with contempt, not with concern. So what is God doing saying, where are you? Are you telling me God doesn't know where he is? God is not wondering where Adam is. God is wanting Adam to wonder why he thinks a life of hiding from God is going to make his life better. It's not a question of condemnation. It's an invitation that he's still giving to you. When you have an epic fail, why do you think hiding and pretending and faking and covering is going to make it better? God is calling the man out, not for scolding, but for healing. Not for a lecture, but for an answer. And it is going to take an epic answer to respond to a fail this epic. And it was an epic fail. Let me show you what I mean. Romans 5. When Adam sinned, sin entered the world. Adam's sin brought death. So death spread to everyone, for everyone sinned. Don't read that as a punishment. Death was not some arbitrary punishment. Death is the inevitable consequence of life apart from God. God is the only self-existent being. You are not. You cannot sustain yourself. You don't have life within yourself. You have to receive life from the source. So when you cut your life off from God, when you say self will be center, not God, you inevitably invite death into your life. But even then, grace is at work. I want you to show that. That God is going to move to protect their destiny. That's what grace does. It protects a destiny. And this is so important because this story is inviting us to see the mercy of God and what would look like the judgment of God. And I want you to remember that. When you read those hard stories in the Bible where God is disciplining, I want you to ask this question. How in this judgment of God can I see and understand the mercy of God? And the grace of God. Verse 22. Then the Lord God said. Look. The human beings have become like us. Knowing both good and evil. What if they reach out. Take fruit from the tree of life. And eat it. Then they will live forever. 
So the Lord God banished them from the Garden of Eden, and he sent Adam out to cultivate the ground from which he'd been made. And after sending them out, the Lord God stationed mighty cherubim to the east of the Garden of Eden. And he placed a flaming sword that flashed back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. What's God doing? In judgment, there is mercy. Because God wants us to live forever. But not in a corrupted, not in a polluted, not in a decaying, fallen state. You remember your Greek mythology? Aurora, the goddess of the dawn, fell in love with a mortal named Tithonus. And Zeus promised that he would give her whatever she wanted to give him as a gift. So she asked that Zeus give him the gift of eternal life. She made a mistake. She did not ask that Zeus would keep him forever young. So Tithnus grew older and older and weaker and frail and sicker and decrepit. But he couldn't escape. Eternal life was a curse in the state he was in. That's what God doesn't want. I want you to understand that God's plan, God's redemption is so cosmic. He doesn't just want to save your soul. He wants to redeem your body. And so, death is now our enemy. But it's also the door to our salvation. Because it is better to die and be raised to live in an incorruptible state than it is to live forever in a state that's constantly being corrupted. So watch. God drove the man away from the blessed tree because it would have been a curse. And the rest of the Bible is going to talk about how God is trying to draw all men To a cursed tree. Because it's going to be the ultimate blessing. Now look at this with me. Still Romans 5. For the sin of this one man, Adam, caused death to rule over many. Can you fail more epically than that? But look at the next phrase. But even greater. Everybody say greater. What could be greater than sin and death coming to every single person? What could be greater than that? But even greater is God's wonderful grace. Everybody say grace. Grace Grace is greater. And it's His gift of righteousness for all who receive it will live in triumph over sin and death. God can do something that is greater than the epic consequence of the greatest fail ever. And how does he do it? Through this one man, Jesus Christ. And so, yes, you can clap for that. From start to finish, the Bible is pointing to the grace that we can find in Jesus Even in the very first story. Because watch what God does. Grace provides a covering. You see, the amazing thing in this story is that sin changed the man's nature. It didn't change God's nature. Sin alters us. It doesn't alter God. 
So it says in verse 21, the Lord God made clothing from animal skins for Adam and his wife. Now, Adam and Eve already had clothes. They had the latest in fig leaf fashion. But their clothes and their attempt to cover their shame were inadequate. And all the attempts ever since of their kids have been too. We fail. We, we bring death into our lives. And then we put on our fig leaves. We, we try to cover up our fail by hiding and pretending and faking and throwing in a few good works. We try to cover up our fail by pointing to other people and saying, well, my fail wasn't as bad as their fail. And the most popular way today we cover our fail is we take a poll. And we decide the majority says that's not shameful anymore. So we just won't be ashamed of what should be shameful. And yet the destruction is still there. The corruption and the decay is still there. And the guilt is still there. So God... In grace said, let me cover. You see, in the Bible, one way you communicate love is you give them clothes. Jacob gave Joseph a beautiful robe because he was the son he loved the most. When the prodigal came back from the far country, the first thing the father said is, put some sandals on his feet and put a robe on his back. And so God says, let me clothe you. But notice, the clothing required a death. Did you know the word atonement literally just means covering? So watch this. Before the tree of life is prohibited, a tree of death was prophesied. In verse 15, God is speaking to the serpent. He says, I will make you and the woman enemies to each other. Your descendants and her descendants will be enemies. One of her descendants will crush your head and you will bite his heel. So God is prophesying. God is predicting total victory over his enemy. But at a price. It's going to require suffering. You see, the cross was no accident. The cross was no afterthought. It was no last-second plan B. As soon as Jesus knew who he was, he knew what he was born to do. Jesus created the tree that they cut down and took the wood from to build a cross Jesus put the iron ore in the earth that they smelted to make the nails that would hold him on it. The execution of God's plan was going to require the execution of God's son. And the Bible is pointing to this from the very start. In Genesis 3, one lamb is going to cover a man. In Exodus 12, one lamb and the blood on the doorpost is going to cover a family. In Leviticus 16, the priest is going to take one land and he's going to make atonement or covering for the nation. And then in John 1, the baptizer is talking and sees someone walking and says, Look, there goes the Lamb of God. And he's going to take away the sins of the world. 
You see what grace announced in the garden to people that were hiding from God was that God was going to make a way for people to hide in God. Several years ago, I read an article in National Geographic. There had been a forest fire in Yellowstone, and after it was over, some rangers were walking through the woods to assess the damage, and one ranger saw the charred remains of a large bird at the base of a tree, and he heard a strange sound, and he flipped the charred remains over, and three little chicks scooted out, and he knew what had happened. That mama bird had her babies up in that nest, and she knew that the poison and the toxin of the flame would rise and kill them, so she took them down to the bottom by that tree. But the flames got closer. Now, she could fly away and save herself, but they could not. And so she covered them. She took the heat, she took the wrath of the fire to save them. And that's what happened at the cross. And Jesus took the just wrath of God. He covered us. Adam and Eve did not have to make their own clothes. They just had to put them on. So do we. You cannot make adequate cover for your sin and your shame. You can accept God's. Galatians 3 says, All of you united with Christ in baptism have put on Christ like putting on new clothes. God made the very first sacrifice for sin. And on the cross, God made the very last sacrifice that ever needs to be made for sin. Grace is that epic. Look at how Paul sums it up in 2 Timothy 1. For God saved us and called us to live a holy life. He did this not because we deserved it. But because that was his plan from the beginning of time. What was the plan? What has always been the plan? From the very start, what has been God's plan to redeem his broken creation? Here it is. To show us his grace through Christ Jesus. And now he's made all this plain to us by the appearing of Christ Jesus, our Savior. And what did he do to save us? He broke the power of death. And he illuminated the way to life and immortality through the good news. You see what he's saying? What Jesus came to do is undo the great fail. He came to break the power of death. He came to make a way so that we could have uncorrupted immortality again. Well, amen. I'm going to say it because you didn't. Amen. That's good news. And it never dawned on Satan the length grace would be willing to go. I'm not sure it's dawned on some of us. That's why we're still hiding and faking and pretending. When I was a young preacher, I would read some of the works of a theologian named Paul Leonard, who didn't start college intending to be a theologian. He wanted to be an engineer. Paul Leonard uh, grew up during the Great Depression. His father died when he was in school. His mother was legally blind. They were desperately poor. 
but his mother begged him to try to go to college. So he enrolled in Ohio State, the only way he could barely survive. He drove a taxi at night, and during the day, he worked in the school cafeteria, lunch and supper bussing tables. And he's scraping by, needing every penny. So one day, he's carrying a tray of food to the faculty table, and he slipped. And all that food fell on the expensive suit of one of his professors. He immediately began to try to wipe it up, and it was just making it worse. And the professor said, Mr. Linder, what are we going to do? Oh, sir, I'll pay to have it cleaned. He didn't have the money, but what else could he say? I don't think this suit can be cleaned, Mr. Linder. Then I'll do whatever I have to do, sir. That afternoon, in that professor's class, wearing his messy suit, he concluded by saying, Paul Linder, I would like to see you after we're dismissed. And Paul came forward and the professor said, Mr. Leonard, I think you need to buy me a new suit. And he made arrangements to meet the next day at a very expensive men's clothing shop. By the time Paul arrived, the professor had been there early. He'd already picked a pattern, some fabric, and been fitted. And nodded toward Paul and said, this is the young man that I said would take care of this bill. And all Paul can think is, how am I going to do this? Will they accept a layaway plan? How many months is it going to take for me to pay for this suit? He walks behind the professor at the store, and the professor turned around and said, Are you sure you want to do this? Yes, sir. He looked over his shoulder back at the clerk and said, Sir, would you fit Mr. Leonard for a suit just like mine? And would you put both suits on my bill? And that day, Paul Leonard not only did not get what he deserved, he got what he could never afford. That was his first encounter with something called grace. And God used it to convince him to spend the rest of his life helping other people find it too. Grace has always been there. From start to finish. And grace will finish what God has started. Go back and read Genesis 3. God did not say, man can never eat the tree of life again. He said, not like they are now. But God is going to redeem his creation. And all who have been covered by Jesus Christ are going to be raised incorruptible. And the very last chapter of the Bible says... Blessed are those who wash their robes. They'll be permitted to enter through the gates of the city and eat the fruit from the tree of life. Your destiny, by grace, is to go back to that tree. But before you can go to that tree, you've got to go to another tree. And there's no angel guarding this tree. There's no heavenly being assigned to keep you away from this tree. It's only your pride and your shame that would keep you away from this tree. And so I'm begging you today. I don't care how bad or big the fail was. Stop hiding and stop faking. And head to the tree. Because the fruit of this tree is epic. Let's bow our heads.
So what can we say, God? What words can I put together in a prayer adequate to thank you for grace? And I know that what I've said today is familiar to many. But there's something about grace that is easy to assent to and hard to accept. I know I'm talking to some people right now. And they are haunted by a memory. They are haunted by a fail. A fail you've already forgiven in Jesus Christ. I pray today they will will trust in your capacity to cover. That they'll come clean, not to be scolded, but to be healed. And I know I'm talking to someone right now, God. And they need some new clothes today. So Holy Spirit, speak to them. Speak to them. Say, come to the altar. The Father's arms are open wide. And in Him there is forgiveness because of the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Speak to them, God. May they come today be baptized and they only have to say one thing dear Jesus I need some new clothes oh God how do we say thank you for grace this is our best thank you for grace Help us to receive it. In Jesus' name, amen.